begin, loved ones, by reading responsively Lord's Day 25, starting with question and answer 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. And now the scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 to 13. This is the word of the Lord. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to our time of study this evening. We just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but most of our time will be uh, more or less looking at different passages that support what we found in the Heidelberg Catechism about the sacraments. Uh, If you've been with us over the past few Sunday evenings, uh, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism and its explanation of the Apostles' Creed, which contains a summary, a concise 
summary of our core beliefs as Christians. Uh, And those core beliefs we say uh, we must hold to and believe, affirm, and trust in in order to be saved. We considered how God declares all those who believe in Christ and his promises for their salvation, all those who believe, are declared righteous before God, justified, not based on any merits of their own, but based rather on the obedience and blood of Jesus alone. Then last week, we considered as well how God saves us as we are, as sinners. He justifies us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. And so he has promised to strengthen our faith and make us like Jesus through a process that we call sanctification. So now the Heidelberg Catechism at this point kind of takes a step back. It takes a step back to ask this question. If it is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits, where then then does that faith come from? And so we've been talking about faith and the result of faith, justification and also sanctification. But we haven't asked or the Heidelberg Catechism for us has not asked yet where that faith comes from. Where did it begin? And this is a very important question. Very important answer as well, because at the end of the day, it determines whether or not you feel proud for having faith because you think it was your own choice and decision by your own initiative, or you are humbled by the fact that God himself has given you that faith by his own grace and mercy. If it is a result of your own willful desire, then you have something to boast of before the world, before even God, and before the unbelievers, because you did something that they did not. But but if you believe your faith, we believe, is not ultimately from you, it was given to you by God himself, and that humbles us to the core, and it should provoke within us a deep gratitude, a thankfulness to God For his great mercy and grace as the catechism has stated for us here the holy spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the holy gospel and confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments and so uh, these two things the preaching of the holy gospel and the use of the holy sacraments are often called in theology The means of grace, means of grace. Hopefully we've heard that term before, means of grace. And that uh, signifies this, that God intends to convey or communicate his grace to us by way of these things, by way of the preaching of the gospel or by use of the holy sacraments. But that can even be a bit confusing because we can begin to think of grace as some kind of substance that is distributed or given to us. But it is better to think of grace not as a substance, but rather as the person, Christ himself. So these gifts of the preaching and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are ways in which the Father is giving us more of Jesus. He's communicating more of Jesus and his benefits to us personally to conform us ever more into the image of Christ. Now we'll have three points tonight. Uh, First, the spirit of faith. Secondly, the sacraments. And thirdly, the sacramental union. So hopefully we'll come to understand what that means by the end of tonight's lesson. First, the spirit of faith. As already stated, we believe that the Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts. 
It's not something that we work within us. No, rather it is the Spirit of God who comes from outside of us and enters into us and gives us faith. And he does that through the ordinary preaching of the gospel. And we, that, that cause, causes us to pause and reflect upon the word of God and the power that is in God's word. Think of the very beginning, the very beginning of creation. The Holy Spirit has always worked with the power of God's word. It is more than informative. It's not merely giving us information. God's word is performative. It performs something. It actually does something. Uh, for example, there in the very beginning, how did God create all things? He said, let there be light. And what happened when he spoke? There was light. It created something. It performed something. This is why uh, Dr. Mar Michael Horton, uh, our professor in seminary, said of God's word, he says this, God's speech does what it says. It does what it says. Not only does God teach and exhort, but the word is the means through which something new is produced. In many cases, God actually brings a new reality by speaking. Uh, like in creation, God made all things through that performative power of his word. And we can think of this in two ways. First, generally, God accomplishes all kinds of things in his creation and in his providence, upholding and sustaining all things through the power of his word. But also specifically, or especially, the Holy Spirit performs what we would say is a spiritual surgery upon the heart of the elect, those who belong to Christ by God's eternal election. He performs a spiritual surgery on our hearts through the preaching of the word of the good news, the gospel. He works a heart transplant, taking out that heart of stone that was unresponsive to God, cold towards God, and instead putting within us a heart of flesh that is responsive to God and delights in him. So that spiritual renewal that the Spirit works through the gospel is called regeneration or rebirth, giving us that new birth. Regeneration precedes faith. And so the, the Holy Spirit first causes us to be born again. And in that process, he awakens faith within us as that gift that he gives us. And so all those who are born again have faith in Jesus and receive all his benefits. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this. He says, It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. God uses the simple preaching of the gospel from the mouths of men, sinful, weak men who fumble with their words and are not always eloquent, even as Paul himself admitted he uses the mouths of men preaching the pure gospel to regenerate sinners, to take what is dead and make alive, to give us faith. And the power is not in the preacher. The power is in the gospel message that we declare. First Peter says it this way. First Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And so that word of God is implanted within us and the spirit 
gives the increase, right? Some plant, others water, but it is the Spirit, the God himself, who gives the increase at the end of the day, who gives new life. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit in that process? Well, we believe that the written word was inspired directly by the Holy Spirit, working through the pens of writers like the Apostle Paul, and was preserved from error. In the preaching of the word, the Spirit comes and enlightens or illuminates our hearts to understand rightly the word of God. Because apart from the Holy Spirit at work within us, if we're, if we're just sitting there, if a person is sitting there apart from the Spirit at work in their heart, God's word is always folly, foolish, silly to those who are perishing. And that's what Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them. Why? Because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So how is it that we come to an understanding of the gospel? How is it that we have discerned that the gospel is, in fact, the power of God unto salvation? It is only by the Spirit of God working within us, illuminating our hearts, giving us the light to see that reality. What this means uh, is that the Spirit accompanies the preaching of the Word of God. He accompanies the preaching. The voice of Christ comes through powerfully. As Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. This reminds me of uh, back when uh, our family or Ariana and I were down at Santee with Reverend Michael Brown uh, in our years in seminary. I remember one of the elders asked if we were ready to commit as members of the church. And my response was, where else would we go? Here are the words of eternal life. Here is where we find and listen and and we hear the voice of Christ so clearly preached and taught from his word. And that's what happens when a faithful preacher uh, is dedicated to the task, not of preaching what he wants to say, but preaching rather what is found in God's word as he studies it and brings those treasures and riches to the people of God week in and week out. And so this means that when preachers faithfully declare the word of God in the name of Jesus, in a sense, the voice of Christ is heard by his sheep. His words of eternal life come through, which is why uh, Reformed uh, community, Reformed Christians have come to call the preaching of God's word the sacramental word. Because the divine voice of Christ, think of this, the divine voice of Christ mysteriously unites to the voice of the preacher. And so the voice of Christ is heard in a sense. The truthfulness of Christ's word comes out through the weak mouth of the preacher. From that reality, uh, the Reformed concluded in the second Helvetic Confession in 1566 with this saying, When this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called... We believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. And so we find that the Spirit's primary means of grace, the first and foremost means of grace, the thing that God wants to use to give us Jesus primarily is the preaching of his word and the gospel especially, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Therefore, Before we get into the sacraments, it's important that we always uphold 
the primacy of God's word. The primacy of the word of God. It always reigns over the sacraments. More important than the sacraments is the word of God. Because the word of God does not need the sacraments in order to be effective. The word of God is effective by when the spirit comes and accompanies the preaching of it. On the other hand, the sacraments do not exist apart from the word of God faithfully preached. Apart from the word of God, the sacraments are in fact empty shells. And so the sacraments can only strengthen faith once it exists. But faith only exists in a person after the spirit works it into them through the preaching of the gospel. And again, that, that is to emphasize the primacy of the preaching of God's word. The spirit produces faith through the preaching of the word and then confirms that faith through the use of the sacraments. And that's what the Heidelberg Catechism is explaining to us here. Now to the second point, the sacraments. If the word of God is effective for salvation, if it has that primary role, then why has God chosen to give us sacraments if the word of God is effective? Well, John Calvin, the reformer, says this, that through the sacraments, God bows down to us in our weakness. It means he knows our frailty. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that the invisible promises that he gives us in his word are hard for us to believe. And so what has he given us? He's given us the sacraments to see, to feel, and touch, and taste. He has given us the sacraments because we are more than spiritual beings. We are body and soul. He's given us grace for all of our physical senses, our eyesight, our hearing, taste, touch, and smell. His grace meets us in each sense of what it means to be human. And so, whereas the word of God speaks his invisible promises to us, the sacraments confirm them to us in a visible and palpable way to us. Now, what are sacraments? Well, we see that in the question and answer 66. The sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper, are visible, holy signs and seals that help us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. So here we find the language of signs and seals, which comes from, uh, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul is describing how Abraham received the sign and seal of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith that he had, or righteousness that he had by faith. And so we find that that language is old language, biblical language that is rooted all the way back in that covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and also there in Romans 4. Now, you might be asking yourself, what about the term sacrament? Where does that come from? Well, it is not found exactly in the Bible itself. It comes rather from the Latin term sacramentum, which in the Vulgate translation, so the Latin translation of the Bible, that was the word that was chosen to translate the Greek term mysterion, mysterion in Ephesians chapter 5. And so there Paul is speaking of the mystery that uh, marriage refers to Christ and his union with the church. And so it, it refers to mystery, this mysterious element. And for that reason, 
Uh, Christians have many within the Reformed community, at least, have kept and held on to this term sacrament because we believe that these ordinances that Christ ordained for the church are more than simple symbols. They are sacred symbols by which God operates mysteriously to give us more of Christ. There is an element of mystery. And so for that reason, we do not reject the term because they are mysterious. As Augustine of Hippo called them, visible signs of invisible grace. God is giving us his his invisible grace, more of Christ through these visible signs in a mysterious way. Now, what are their characteristics? Well, we find that they are consecrated signs that point to unseen realities. They are signs that signify something, right? Every sign that we see on the road, it's pointing to a reality. It's telling us here that you're entering into the city of Ontario or you need to turn on this street, right? And so the, the sacraments are signs pointing to unseen realities, which is Christ and all of his saving benefits. They are also seals. What, is, what does a seal do? A seal guarantees and certifies the validity of something that Christ and all his benefits, forgiveness of sins and, and all other benefits that, that he gives us, that they are ours personally, sealed and guaranteed to you on a personal level. What else? They were instituted by Christ. They're not mere human ordinances, but rather ordained by God himself. And they are perpetual ordinances. They are to be continued in practice until he returns. And that's how Christ lays it out for us, uh, both for baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, how does the Spirit confirm our faith through these sacraments? Well, baptism is that sign of initiation into the covenant community. And so, like we read in 1 Corinthians 10, the Israelites, how were they brought to the Lord to make covenant with him at Mount Sinai? They were brought through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses and came under the cloud, so as it were. Uh, and in that way, they were brought to the Lord and made into his special covenant people. And so, too, baptism, our water baptism, initiates us into God's special covenant people now today. He brings us into the fold. And then the Lord's Supper is a sign of nourishment and perseverance in that community, in that covenant people. Similar, we might think again of the Israelites in the wilderness wondering what did God give them for food to nourish and strengthen them along the way? The manna from heaven, right? And also the rock that was struck by Moses to give them water. And so we see that the Lord's Supper is the way that God nourishes and strengthens us in our pilgrimage through our own life as Christians. And it's important, again, to see them as more than just symbols. We believe that the Spirit mysteriously uses the sacraments to strengthen our union with Christ. They are means of grace. And this is evidenced, especially when we consider our third point, that sacramental union, and that sacramental language that is found in the Bible. So that's our third point, sacramental union. By that phrase, it's a big, heady theological phrase, I know, Uh, But it is important, the concept. By this phrase, we mean that God promises to work a mysterious communion 
or participation between the sign and that reality that it is pointing to, the thing that is signified. There is a mysterious union that the spirit works, a spiritual relation, therefore, between the bread. And what is the thing that it signifies? The body of Christ, right? Also, the same thing with the wine. What does it signify? The blood of Christ. And the waters of our baptism signify the washing of renewal by the Holy Spirit with the blood of Christ. And so there is a spiritual relation between the sign and the thing that it is pointing to, the thing that is signified by the sign. And that is a very that is a distinctly reformed view. You won't get that view or understanding of the scriptures really from any other Christian tradition or church today. Uh, it's very distinctly reformed. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a reformed confession, chapter 27, section 2, states this. And this is all about that sacramental union. It says this. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation, a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. And so what is said of one is also said of the other. And that's how we see in the Bible where that sacramental union is. And this is a complicated concept, but when we understand it, in, at least in a bit, it, it's amazing. And it, it delights the soul as we see what God is really offering us through the sacraments. So where is that language found in the Bible? Where is it evidence that there is this spiritual relation between signs and the thing that they signify? Well, first in the Old Testament, we see in the Old Testament that circumcision, what is circumcision? It is the sign, right? It is called the covenant. Circumcision is the covenant, not just a sign of the covenant, but it is the covenant, the reality that is signified. And that's Genesis 17, 10 and 11. And then we find that the Passover lamb, which was a sign, is called by Paul Christ, Christ himself. And so there's a spiritual relation between the two and then here in first corinthians 10 look at that paul calls the rock in the wilderness which is the sign the rock is the sign what does he call the rock christ christ right that is the reality that is signified by the rock so much so that he adds that they drank spiritual drink spiritual with a capital s by the work of the holy spirit they actually were imbibing christ by faith mysteriously they were taking him in mysteriously by faith as they drank the water from the rock now in the new testament of course we find the bread which is the sign is called the body he says this is my body not only this is a symbol of my body this is my body so the sign is called the thing that it is signified the cup of wine the sign is called the shed blood so again, that spiritual relation and the waters of baptism are called the washing of regeneration in Titus 3, 5. Now, most clearly, this sacramental union comes out in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. You might want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, where we see very clearly in the Apostle Paul's mind this spiritual relation. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul is here uh, giving rhetorical questions uh, because he knows what the answer is, and he assumes that his readers understand what the answer is. Yes, the answer is yes, there is a real participation between the two. He doesn't explain what that relationship is or how it works. Rather, he just states that there is this participation or fellowship. The Greek word there is koinonia. There is this fellowship between the two things, the sign and the things signified. And what that means is that when we're washed in the waters of baptism, God doesn't just wash dirt away from us. But when we come to believe in the promise declared to us in our baptism, it works as a seal by which the Spirit applies truly the washing of our regeneration. So God gives us more than just a water bath. He's actually renewing us spiritually by washing us clean with the blood of Christ. But it only works in that way for the elect, those who believe upon the promise of God. And also, God doesn't just give us bread and wine to nourish our physical bodies, but we also receive by faith the promise, and we receive in that nothing less, as we declare week in and week out, nothing less in the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual drink and spiritual food given for us. But again, only, only for those who belong to God, the elect of God, those who believe. Uh, if we, if you remember the text that we read here in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we find that the Israelites who were baptized and who drank from the rock and ate the bread from heaven, well, they participated, many of them participated outwardly, externally, as members of that community, but many of them did not have true, genuine faith. And so they did not receive Christ and all of his benefits, and instead... Instead, they, they died in judgment, under, under God's judgment in the wilderness. And so, too, if someone comes to the Lord's table or receives water baptism but does not respond in faith, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves uh, or they incur upon themselves greater judgment for rejecting the promises of God that have been declared over them in a personal way. But going back to the positive point here, both baptism and the Lord's Supper point us to whom? Christ. Christ and his finished work for us. They are visible words of his unseen grace. And in that way, through the preaching of the gospel and the holy use of the sacraments, the Holy Spirit teaches us, as the Catechism says, that our entire salvation rests on Christ, one sacrifice for us on the cross confirming that reality to us. And the Spirit confirms it, seals it to us through the use of the holy sacraments. These sacraments, what are they? They are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, and they were given to us by our Father to serve a vital role in the Christian life, to initiate us into his people to nourish us along the way, to bring us into the family of God and to feed us day or week in and week out. And so know this and remember this, the Holy Spirit, he is committed to strengthening our union with Christ, to giving us more of him. And the Spirit has promised to work that 
through primarily the preaching of the gospel and also that the pure use of the sacraments. Think of this on Father's Day. This is how God our Father has given us new birth, causing us to be born again and into the family of God. And he brings us into the fold as orphans, uh, children of wrath. And he washes us clean, owning us now as his children, clothing us in the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness, equal heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. And then week in and week in and week out, he feeds us. He nourishes us, strengthens us along the way with the Lord's Supper. This is how our Father, God our Father, delights to care for us, his children. What then should be the application of this? Well, since he has given us such great gifts, let us receive them by faith. Let us diligently go to them and receive by faith what God our Father has given us, namely his Son. And we receive his Son by receiving the preaching of his word and receiving by faith the sacraments and the Spirit through them is communicating to us more and more of Christ until at last our faith turns into sight and we are there with him in glory. May we diligently attend to these means of grace for his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we delight that you have so deigned in love to call us out as your own, to give us new birth through the preaching of your gospel, the good news, to bring us into your family, washing us clean of all our sin by the blood of your only Son, and also, Lord, nourishing us through the holy sacrament, not with a substance, but rather with the body and blood of your only begotten Son, he who was crucified for us, he who is risen and returning for us to bring us fully and finally home with you. Lord, cause us by faith to diligently attend to these means of grace that you have given us, to receive them with grateful hearts, and that we do ask and pray, Lord, that you would indeed strengthen our faith all the more as we come before you, O Father, and receive your care and love for us. You are a good good father. And we praise you for your grace and mercy in Jesus name. Amen.